You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. We all have a mental picture of an island, whether it's a tropical paradise, a wildlife sanctuary, or the secret location of buried treasure. According to the map, it's just four paces due east from this palm tree. One, two, three, four, and X marks the spot. Time to get digging. There's the traditional island, a slip of land dotted with palm trees, but that's not all. Islands have taken on so many images in human consciousness. From the volcanic hulks of Hawaii to the urban islands of Manhattan and Hong Kong to ecological habitats and even an individual human being. Just a few requirements really define an island. Uh, The notion of an island tends to be something that is separated from the domain around by some barrier or other. And they can be any shape and size. They can be as small as a tree in which a particular species of butterflies uh, gathers or a mountain valley. And islands have great influence upon the world. They appear, they disappear. Various sorts of animals and plants call islands home. They're supposed to be isolated, but their dynamics affect us a lot more than you might think, especially if you consider all the microbial islands that are living off you. Maybe you're not a solitary individual after all. So we'll explore the island theme because, well, we're not as insular as we often believe. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, and this land is Island. Now, taking the broad perspective from how islands form to who lives on them and when and how humans first navigated their way to a tiny dot of land that lay just beyond the horizon. Island, How Islands Transform the World is University of Toronto professor emeritus Ted Chamberlain's book. Okay, if I say island, what image comes to mind? Maybe the palm tree version or the urban heat island. If you're lucky, it's your next vacation destination. But the official definition, or rather one of them, There's a Scottish census, for example, in the uh, 18th century that defined an island as a place where there was at least one person and one sheep. (laughs) And in the Thousand Islands on the St. Lawrence River, the definition of an island is uh, a piece of land that is above water uh, all year and has a tree on it. Uh, Let's go back to that definition of an island uh, according to the Scottish census takers that it was one man or one person and a sheep. Was there ever an island where it was just one man and a sheep? Well, some of those North Atlantic islands um, came down to very few people, and certainly the um, travels out to the islands around the world, but especially in the North Atlantic by the early Christian monks, often were places where they would be alone, where there would be, uh, so there would be hermitages on the island. Sometimes there would be several individuals, but on different parts of the island. So the tradition of islands as a place where you would be all alone is an old one. Now that gives us an idea of small islands as defined by population. But what, what is the smallest island that you know of, physically the smallest island? The smallest island that I think of every day is an island up here in the North Pacific coast, just off where we live, um, north of Vancouver. A little piece of rock that sticks up above the water about a foot across 
on which um, seals and occasionally sea lions come and sit and lollygag around it. But that raises a big question about how many islands are there. And it really depends on how small you want to get. And is a rock outcrop an island? Uh, lots of people would say it is. And certainly, if you're charting the coastline, you want to include it as an island um, so that folks don't run into it when they're sailing by. That brings to the question of the population of islands. Do we know what percentage of the world's population lives on islands? No, I don't know what the total now is for uh, uh, the world's population, but roughly a billion people live on islands, which is uh, a good percentage of the world's population. And just about a quarter of the United Nations are island nations. Now, the subtitle of your book is How Islands Transform the World. But by definition, as we've been discussing, islands are isolated entities in one way or the other. So how can islands transform anything? They transform the world because of the way we tend to think of them. Creation stories around the world, both religious and scientific creation stories, take islands often as the center, the beginning, and sometimes the end of the storyline, uh, so that the earth is an island in space, life begins, certainly life as we mostly recognize it, when land emerges from the water. It's that image of an island being the place where life begins, where life continues, that I think is part of the imaginative transformation of the world. That said, the creation of islands in the natural world is also part of the transformation of the world as, as islands emerge out of the sea. Um, most of the ocean islands are volcanic, come from the bottom of the sea and come up through the surface and then sometimes disappear again. Is it usually because of the rising sea? I guess it has to be one way or the other. But what usually makes them go away? Well, it is sometimes because of the rising sea, for sure. It's also because with ocean islands, they emerge from the ocean floor, from volcanic activity. And ocean rocks are very heavy, much heavier than continental rocks. Um, they tend to be basalts rather than granites, and they weigh themselves down and sink. So there's all sorts of reasons that have to do with the structure of the Earth and the activity of tectonic plates, as well as changes in the climate, and as well as the, the sort of vagaries of volcanic action and the erosion by wind and waves. Well, the tectonic activity is also what gives way to islands and why islands and how islands are formed. And, for example, the island of Hawaii is still growing. Well, it's still growing because there still is constant volcanic activity that is bringing up lava that cools as it um, comes out of the magma, the center of the earth, uh, and adds more mass to the island. Iceland is another island, and there's one small island just off the coast of Iceland called Surtsey that emerged out of the sea in the 1960s, and scientists are watching how it's becoming inhabited by flora and fauna. Now, the Galapagos Island shaped Darwin's thinking about the origin of species, and of course all of us too. But did it have to be the Galapagos? I mean, what if Darwin had sailed to Newfoundland or Fiji or... 
somewhere else, do you think he would have had the same revelations about how species mutate over time? I think being an ocean island made a difference. So had a number of people have said, had he gone to Hawaii, he would have been perhaps even more excited than he was when he went to the Galapagos because the variety, the range, the sense of species emerging, of new species um, developing was, is in some ways even more obvious there. The ocean islands are different in that they are separated from the environmental influences of mainland species. They're kind of like small laboratories, isolated laboratories, um, closed systems. So I think had he gone to a number of the ocean islands, he might not have found quite the variety that he found on the Galapagos, but he would have come to something of the same conclusions that were developing in his mind. Um, I mean, one of the things that fascinated him and why geology is so closely connected to all of this, Darwin began his scientific career as a geologist. And a lot of his early writings were about the geology of ocean islands. There was a, a, a body of thinking that said, no, no, islands are just what's left of continents when the water level rises. And he never believed that and was able, along with some others, to demonstrate that that simply wasn't true of ocean islands. It's fascinating. It makes islands living entities, not only because they're moving and they're sort of mutating all the time physically, they're morphing, but what comes alive on them, the species that come alive on them. And and you mentioned the small island off the coast of Iceland. Surtsey. And studies have been done of how quickly islands are populated by plants and then by animals and so forth. Can you give us some idea of how it is that new species, whether it's plant or animal, come to an island? Well, <laughs> both of how and why is a question, especially when it comes to birds who, are, who have the easiest time getting to islands. Um, and some of the marine mammals um, have an easy time. The flora gets there in a variety of ways, some carried by the wind and some on the water or on the whole range of floating material. Reptiles especially are able to survive those long voyages because they're cold-blooded and they can heat themselves by the, the ambient air around them, the sun and, and, and the air. They don't need the food um, that the rest of us, that the, us warm-blooded animals, need to keep us warm enough. So does that suggest that a lizard might be running around somewhere on on a beach? They hop onto a piece of wood that then gets uh, knocked into the water and off they go. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Chance plays a very, very, very large part in the populating by flora and fauna of most of the world's islands. Humans are another animal that has populated islands. Um, and at some point, the first humans had to come to an island. And I think it's extraordinary to think about the, um, well, for example, Polynesian sailors who got into their boats and sailed off into the horizon, not knowing what they would find there. And of course, they were extraordinary navigators. Can you say a little bit about those journeys and why they were important? Well, I mean, they're, they're important for all kinds of reasons. One is that they give us an example of one of the most extraordinary maritime achievements and maritime cultures in the history of the world. Um, the Polynesian sailors and settlers who colonized the Far Islands and indeed the nearer islands um, to 
uh, Indonesia and to the Western Pacific over several thousand years. We don't know what compelled them, inspired them to go out to those islands, whether it was the choice of going to a better place, whether it was because the place they were was either unfriendly or the habitat was uh, diminishing. That certainly seems to have happened for several times as water levels changed. Before the waters were charted, how did they navigate? By the stars, I would assume, or by the, by the sun? They navigated by the stars. They navigated by watching sea signs, um, the surface of the water, the movement of the waves, um, the color of the sky, the, obviously the movement of the birds and the marine mammals and the fish. There's a line that you write, I believe, which maybe you've already explained, but I'm going to give it to you again, um, which is you say that islands are like theaters separated by the rest of the world. And, and now maybe we have an idea of the sort of theater that plays out on islands, but would you like to add to that what you mean by that? Well, you enter a theater, you cross a threshold, and you enter a world that has its own rules, its own character, its own set of relationships. Islands are like that. The threshold is the water. You enter there and it has its own flora and fauna. It has its own geology and geography and climate. And you need to find rules of behavior, relationships that will work within the theater that is that island. And, and of course, all theater has drama. <laughs> All islands do as well, and, and the story of islands is a dramatic story. Ted Chamberlain, thank you very much for speaking to us. Thank you. Ted Chamberlain is Professor Emeritus of English and Comparative Literature at the University of Toronto. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and author of Island, How Islands Transform the World. Now, he said that roughly a billion people live on islands and that a large percentage of the world's nations are islands. Well, they'll be the first harmed by rising sea levels. Environmentalist Bill McKibben on the threat of climate change to island nations and the isolated habitats next. It's This Land is Island on Big Picture Science. At the 2009 United Nations Climate Change Conference in Copenhagen, the delegate from the island nation of Tuvalu made a plea before world leaders, he said, make legally binding agreements to address climate change and help save his Polynesian island and others. The entire population of Tuvalu lives below two meters above sea level. The highest point above sea level in, in the entire nation of Tuvalu is only four meters. Madam President, this is not just an issue of Tuvalu. Pacific Island countries, Kiribati, Marshall Islands, Maldives, Haiti, Bahamas, Grenada, Sao Tome and Principe in the West Africa, and millions of other people around this world are affected enormously by climate change. I woke this morning and I was crying, and that's not easy for a grown man to admit. The fate of my country rests in your hands. Thank you. The Copenhagen summit failed in its attempt to get commitments from leading countries to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. And for island nations, that failure poses a special threat. But it also poses a special threat 
to the inhabitants of virtual islands. As average global temperatures have increased, some creatures have migrated north or south in the southern hemisphere. Scientists have tallied hundreds and hundreds of species who are on the move. In a relatively recent study, researchers in Britain tracked the changes in the ranges of some 1,300 species of plants, animals, and insects. And they found that a warming climate is driving species toward higher latitudes and higher altitudes. But picking up and moving to a new home is not an option for creatures whose habitats are isolated by water or by the boundaries of their ecosystem, both natural and man-made. You know, how do you cross a highway that cuts through your marshland home to build a nest on the other side? So being isolated poses a special hazard as the climate changes. And that's true whether you live in a micro-ecosystem island or a more traditional one. Environmentalist Bill McKibben has been tracking both. For most low-lying island nations, he says, for example, the greatest immediate threat from climate change comes from a rapid rise in sea level. So take a place like the Maldives in the Indian Ocean. Uh, Beautiful, paradisical. Your idea of what Eden looks like, white sand beaches, coconut palms. Uh, It's an archipelago of about 1,200 islands spread across the equator over a large distance. Uh, the highest point in the archipelago is a meter or two above sea level. So that 5,000-year-old culture is unlikely to become 5,100 years old. The water is going to overwhelm them. They're already setting aside money in the national budget to try and buy a homeland someplace else, though God knows where since there's not really a lot of vacant real estate there in, in that part of Asia. That's what's happening on too many places around the world. People aren't giving up. Our colleagues around the low-lying island nations, are. their slogan is, we're not drowning, we're fighting. And they're doing all they can. But of course, most of what they're trying to do is appeal to those of us who actually pour the carbon into the atmosphere to stop doing it. So this is a, uh, not a question of booming. I mean, this just means your habitat goes away. It just very, means the, the island's not there anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's very straightforward. What, what about islands that are less, if you will, geographically islands in the conventional sense, you know, mm-hmm. surrounded by water, but things like, I don't know, the Dead Sea, the Mississippi Delta, the Great Barrier Reef, these so-called micro-environments, is what happens to them more or less the same sort of problem? Are they confronting the same things? They're not necessarily confronting flooding, but the Dead Sea might go away for some other reason. Well, yes, the Dead Sea is dropping very steadily for a number of reasons, including the fact that it keeps getting warmer. In general, dry areas of the world are getting drier and wet areas wetter, and this is making life difficult in all kinds of ways. You know, we see this phenomenon place after place. If you look at something like the Great Barrier Reef, the changes that are underway have more to do with the rising temperature and acidity of the ocean. That makes life very tough for the small animals that build corals. The coral reef researchers are pretty much in agreement that this is going to be a um, vanishing, if not vanished, ecosystem before this century's out unless we get our act together and stop pouring carbon into the atmosphere. One of the things that happens as the climate changes is that things need to move. Uh, You raise the temperature uh, degree and zones of habitation move northward. So that's hard to do on a big land mass because there's a lot of things in the way. You know, the bears at Yellowstone 
don't live there because they know they're an important part of the tourist economy. They live there because it's the right temperature. And if the right temperature is now going to be 500 miles north, there's a lot of roads and towns and things in between. That'll be hard. On an island, of course, it's essentially impossible to move. Uh, and there are different kinds of islands. There are islands out in the water, and then there are islands in the sky. Uh, think about the animals and plants trapped near the upper edges of a mountain uh, in an alpine area. Uh, they've got to move north. Well, eventually they run out of mountain. Is there some sort of uh, limit to how small an environment can be and be so vulnerable? I mean, I'm thinking of southward facing hill slopes, for example, or a tide pool or, you know, something that's that's very constricted in terms of its geographic area. Not too many acres involved. But is is that considered a micro environment? Is that the kind of thing that you'd have to worry about? Yeah. I mean, small is small works as long as things are stable and predictable. But in times of rapid flux, uh, what you need are escape routes, you know, as um, the temperature changes and with it the flora and the fauna, uh, increasingly conservation biologists focus on trying to figure out corridors, ways to connect up, say, uh, the Adirondacks of upstate New York with the Algonquins of southern Canada so that species can transition out of a warming U.S. into a more hospitable Canada and survive a while longer. You know, we talk about mobility in human society all the time, but it sounds to me like a lot of these microenvironments are (laughs) constricted by things that have really nothing to do, at least not directly, with climate change, simply because the wildlife or whatever, the the flora and fauna, won't even necessarily cross a road very effectively. I I remember in the 1880s, right, the buffalo uh, wouldn't, for some reason, wouldn't cross the transcontinental railroad. They wouldn't cross the railroad tracks. And as a result, the, the herds were split, and I, I think that made them much more vulnerable. Uh, do we do we really have that kind of problem here? Will they not cross the road unlike the chickens? I mean, they won't cross the road? Well, of course, it's very difficult for a lot of things to get through human habitation. So let's think about a marsh along the ocean. You know, over deep geologic time, the ocean's risen and fallen, and they've generally done it slowly enough that the marshes along their edge have been able to migrate inland. Uh, We're doing it very quickly, which would strain that ability of migration to begin with. But then think about what's alongside the oceans. You go 50 yards inland and there's saltwater taffy stands and highways and McDonald's and beachfront hotels and condominiums. And uh, how the hell is the saltwater marsh going to make it through that? You know, this may be a thorny question, but I'll ask it anyhow. We're worried about endangered species, have been for quite some time now. Each has some critical habitat. The whole endangered species program is built on the idea of preserving those habitats. But if the habitats change because the climate has changed and the animals really are no longer adapted to that particular habitat, you know, don't these preserves act sort of like death traps? I mean, that kind of calls into question the efficacy of of the endangered species program. Well, it calls into question 
doing things on a small scale. It's no accident, for instance, that the Nature Conservancy over the last two decades has turned from trying to protect you know, three acres where there's some rare orchid to looking at the world on a much more landscape scale and trying to preserve exactly the kind of corridors and large spaces that I've been describing. Uh, you know, you talk about larger scale spaces, and is, is there any upper limit to how big that is? I mean, it's fashionable to consider the entire planet as an, you know, an island habitat, but is that just, you know, sort of an appealing metaphor, or is there really any truth to that? Because after all, life's been around for three and a half, four billion years on this planet. Uh, it seems to adapt to pretty terrible things. Well, I wouldn't worry about the future of life, capital L, on the planet. Something will survive, but I would be definitely worried about the um, flora and fauna that we came into this world with, our brothers and sisters of the late Pleistocene. The scientists are pretty clear that as we warm the planet, we're triggering the sixth great extinction event in the Earth's history, and that we can expect to lose an enormous percentage of the planet's DNA over the course of the next 50 or 60 years. There were new studies out yesterday showing that plant and animal habitats will shrink for most animals by two-thirds before the century is out, and it's not good news. Well, there's certainly been a lot of pushback recently. I mean, it seems like five years ago, the idea of doing something about climate change was uh, very much a mainstream idea. But in the meanwhile, various pressure groups have suggested that this is an overstated problem. And yet, uh, just recently, it seems we've reached another magic number, 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide. Uh, we're essentially there. And, and this is a, a limit that's way beyond the 350 parts per million that uh, I guess is the, the the basis of the name of your organization. The, the safe upper limit, yes. yes. So, so I mean, do you, do you see, actually, you've said that the American public is now on board with the idea that we have to do something. The U.S. and China together account for almost half the problem of carbon uh, emissions into the atmosphere. Do you, do you really think that uh, the public is on board with this? Are they willing to do I think the, the public. I think the public's ready to go. I think Exxon and the Koch brothers aren't ready to go. And I think too many of our um, political institutions and other sort of centers of wealth and power aren't willing to stand up to the fossil fuel industry yet. So we'll see if we can make that happen. And, and are you optimistic about that? I mean, you're obviously I'm, talking about it. I've given up being optimistic or pessimistic. I get up in the morning and work as hard as I can on the biggest problem that humans have ever faced. And I, I don't know how it's going to come out. Uh, scientifically, it's very hard to be optimistic at the moment. The melt of the Arctic last summer was an epic event. We took one of the largest physical features on Earth and we broke it. Um, that's daunting. On the other hand, it's very good to see the rise of powerful movements, things like 350.org around this country and around the world. I don't know whether we can organize fast enough to get ahead of the physics or not. That's what the next few years will show. Bill McKibben, thank you so much for talking with me. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Bill McKibben is a writer, activist, and professor of environmental studies at Middlebury College, and he's the founder of 350.org.
Are you proud of your individuality, your capacity for solitude? Do you think that no man is an island stuff just doesn't apply to you? Well, meet your neighbors. They're closer than you think. If you count all the microbial cells that are in and on our bodies, they outnumber our human cells by tenfold. So by cell number, we're actually more microbial than we are human. Yep, the idea that no man or woman is an island may be literally true. Stanford University microbiologist Justin Sonnenberg studies the microbes that live on and in you, me, all of us. And when we do the numbers of microbes, the tally is high. But it's more than just being outflanked. Scientists have changed their understanding in just how important microbes and microbiota, the microbe communities that they inhabit, are to our health, to our existence. In fact, it's prompted a redefinition of personhood. Justin, I consider myself an individual, but what happens to that idea if you uh, break out the microscope? Uh, I seem to have multiple living parts. Well, it's true. Most people think of us as just human beings, but we're actually composite organisms. We have a human component, our human cells, and then we are colonized by a huge diversity of microbial cells known as our microbiota. And so really it's appropriate to think about humans as this aggregate organism, a superorganism composed of both microbial and human cells. Now, the amazing fact is that if you count all the microbial cells that are in and on our bodies, they outnumber our human cells by tenfold. So by cell number, we're actually more microbial than we are human. But not by weight. No, not by weight. But along with all that diversity of microbes comes a huge genetic diversity. And so we are not just the product of our human genome. We're the product of our microbiome, which is the aggregate microbial genome. And so while these cells may not make up the bulk of our mass, they certainly make up the bulk of our metabolic diversity. We have microbes inside us. We have microbes outside us. Let me, let me start with the ones on the outside, the ones that I don't actually see in the mirror. At least I don't recognize them as such. I mean, presumably they're all over my, my skin, my eyes, my hair. Are they just using me as, as some place to run around or do they take any advantage of being on my eye or whatever? <laughs> Yeah, so these are, you know, symbionts in the truest sense. They, um, by colonizing our, our skin and other body sites, have a habitat where they can grow and divide. They're actually um, using portions of our body as food that we're excreting and secreting. But they're also providing benefit to us. We've co-evolved with these microbes, and they are shaping aspects of our biology, such as the status of our immune system. And so there's some evidence that depending upon what microbes are on on your skin that can change how you fight off infections that you may encounter. Okay, so I assume these external microbes, they're responsible for things like, I don't know, plaque on my teeth, tooth decay, body odor. I mean, am I right about all this? These guys sound like something I want to get rid of. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, there there are some perhaps le less attractive features that come along with these communities, but the fact is that they're intertwined with so many aspects of our biology that you can't see or smell or hear that it's really important to take care of these microbes and make sure that they're happy because their happiness leads to our um, health. All right, well, let's talk about the microbes on the inside. Where would I find these guys? If I opened up my chest, would I just see big lumps of them? I mean, where are they? No, so, I mean, you can think about the, the human body as a, um, somewhat of a tube 
where uh, we have a digestive tract that runs through us. And this digestive tract is actually somewhat equivalent to the outside of our body in that it's exposed to the environment. And because of that, it is colonized with microbes. So all the way from the tip of our tongue down to our anus, we're colonized with microbes along our digestive tract. Now, are these guys working in concert or, you know, they say no man is an island, but, but what about these microbes? Are they fairly independent of one another or are they working together in some way? Yeah, so they're um, involved in this really complex ecosystem. So there's all kinds of metabolic links between these microbes. And so we can think about our gut microbiota as this complex microbial ecosystem where the members of the community are both competing for nutrients, but in some case sharing nutrients as well and, and synergizing for, for instance, the breakdown of dietary fiber in our distal gut, which is one of the major food sources for our, our gut microbiota. You know what I'd like? Uh, I think termites have some sort of microbes, right, that allow them to eat wood and other cellulose products. We don't have those, and that sounds like a shame. Otherwise, I'd be able to eat paper rather than recycling it. Yeah, you're right. So the, we, we don't have bacteria that are especially well adapted to degrade cellulose. And the reason for that is because it's such a time-intensive process for microbes to do this. And therefore, because of our short digestive tract and the relatively rapid transit time of the digestive tract, there's just not sufficient time for microbes to break down cellulose in contrast, for instance, to a termite gut or the rumen of a cow. Is there any point in our life history where we really don't have any of these microbial hitchhikers? Well, you know, I think looking at the human body as an island is really appropriate because when we're born into this world, we're actually born without microbes. We're completely sterile. And then as soon as we enter this world, we're rapidly colonized, first by the bacteria in our mother's vagina as we pass through the birth canal, and then by environmental microbes um, that rapidly colonize our digestive tract. And so if you imagine an island springing up in the middle of an ocean that's barren without any plant or animal species associated with it, and then gradually over time, different species come in and colonize, this is exactly what happens with our bodies. And it's um, somewhat of a chaotic process where it's a product of a lot of different factors, mode of birth, um, whether we're breastfed, how sterile our environment is, whether we take antibiotics, how many fevers we have, all of these factors play into the assembly of this, of us, the island, and all of the, our resident species. There have been numerous articles recently suggesting that maybe today's emphasis on keeping your kids away from germs, don't let them play in the dirt, don't let the dog lick their face and so forth, that this is all misguided. Uh, is it misguided? I certainly think so, actually. I think that there's really good mounting evidence that the uh, microbial communities associated with people in industrialized countries in the Western world are plummeting in terms of their diversity. And this is probably due to a lot of factors, but um, certainly antibiotic use, homogeneous diets, and a more sterile environment that we live in in general is contributing to this. And there are a lot of Western diseases that are on the rise at the same time that our microbial diversity is decreasing. So there's a fairly strong link that exposure to more microbes may actually be better for our long-term health. Any idea how long this symbiotic relationship with these microbes has been going on? I mean, from an evolutionary sense. Um, well, you know, I, microbes are 
basically everywhere on the planet. And so any organism that exists on this planet is interacting continually with microbes. And so uh, you can expect that any metazoan organism, multiple-celled organism that you um, look at, will have microbes associated with it. Now, we have a very special experimental model, and they're called germ-free mice. And these mice live in sterile plastic bubbles, and they have absolutely no microbes associated with their bodies. And these provide a really wonderful experimental platform to try to understand the impact of the microbial communities on the host organism. Well, Justin, that leads me to to ask you this. If somehow you had some way of sterilizing me, just the microbial components, right? You got rid of all the microbes inside and out. What would happen to me? What would be my life? Surprisingly, for as important as we know the microbiota is for so many facets of human health, these germ-free mice, for instance, that don't have any microbes associated with their bodies, appear to live fairly normal, healthy lives. They have normal fertility, but the husbandry or the the nutrients that we provide these animals and the protected environment that they live in has been optimized. And so it's difficult to know in a real environment if there's any major cost to not having your microbes microbes associated with your body. We do know that it would have a number of impacts on your immune system, your metabolism, and your ability to fight off pathogenic uh, disease. So I shouldn't go for the colon cleansing? I would not recommend it. In fact, I would recommend a high-fiber diet and avoiding antibiotics as much as you can. Justin Sonnenberg, thank you so much for uh, talking with us. My pleasure. Justin Sonnenberg is a microbiologist in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at Stanford University. Coming up, is our pale blue dot our home planet Earth, just another island on the seas of the cosmos? And what if we find life on another world? Could it become an invasive species that could cause trouble here in our little planetary patch? It's This Land is Island on Big Picture Science. been looking at the idea of islands from a number of perspectives. Traditional islands, microbial islands, humans as not being islands. And Ted Chamberlain, earlier in the program, talked about how islands are formed. He gave us a final thought on the idea of islands, our planet as an island. Earth is an island in space. It's a concept that we all live with and live by, whether we realize it or not. And we're fascinated by the existence of other islands out there somewhere. And like those early and latter-day travelers as well to islands, we're uh, fascinated by the possibility to travel out to other islands in space. So here we are on our own private island, but we all know that there could be alien island communities out there in the cosmos. So what happens if our spherical little island, the planet Earth, establishes some sort of physical contact with the biology of another island, Mars, for example. Now, we're not talking Hollywood-style invasions here, but could we or they suffer some sort of biological contamination? And by the way, what about the reaction of society? Could we handle the news of life in space? Margaret Race is an ecologist at the SETI Institute, and brother Guy Consolmagno is an astronomer at the Vatican Observatory. Brother Guy, you work for the Vatican Observatory, and some people might be surprised to hear that the Vatican has an observatory. 
That's the whole reason we have the observatory, to surprise people. <laughs> I love that look of shock when they realize that I'm not only wearing a Roman collar, but also an MIT ring. And it's to remind people that it is possible to be at the same time a fanatic and a nerd. Uh, because I'm a fanatic about my religion and my science, and I'm a nerd about my religion and my science. Now, I want to bring Margaret Race into this conversation, but first ask, Margaret, have you been to the Vatican Observatory? I never have. I guess I have something else to put on my bucket list. Oh, you've got to come. Perhaps we can get you an invitation out of this. Oh, that'd be great. Anytime. <laughs> well, the reason I want to bring you in and, and also open up this conversation is that Margaret, you're a scientist at the SETI Institute. You're an ecologist. And there is an area in which, uh, Margaret and Brother Guy, the questions that you're pursuing overlap. And that is the consequences of what a discovery of life, alien life, would mean for life on this planet. And Margaret, I'll, maybe I'll just start with you. Could you give me an overview of what some of your concerns are? Because I believe they're in the technical, legal, and societal areas. Yes, they are. And I can make a confession as well. I, too, have a dual personality. I'm actually a marine biologist. And so I work with rocket scientists and astronomers, but I'm not one. And I got into this because at the time that NASA was going, was planning to bring back samples from Mars, they realized that they might have problems with doing the environmental impact statement. If they go to Mars to bring back rocks, it could have life in it. We don't know what kind of life it is. Then again, it might not be anything but rocks that you're bringing back. And where would you put it on Earth, and what kind of science would you do to study it? It's important both from the, the legal point, the ethical point, and the scientific point. I think this is one of those cases where they all sort of merge in the same direction. We all want to do the right thing, and the right thing is to make sure that there is no contamination one way or the other. What's the point of bringing a rock all the way back from Mars if the first thing that happens is that you sneeze on it and you're filling it with human E. coli? And you inevitably bump into questions that are societal, cultural, and even ethical, and perhaps religious and theological. And what we're talking about here, which is reflected in your early work, is the concept of invasive species. And is that the way that you're thinking about potential alien species from Mars or from another planet coming to Earth? The idea is we need to regard it the way that we would an invasive species perhaps from um, Arizona coming to California. There's opportunity there, but there's incredible damage. Absolutely. And that's exactly it. So my dissertation was actually on mud snails in San Francisco Bay. They got brought in as egg cases on the back of oysters that were deliberately carried on the Transcontinental Railroad. And so you can see that emerging technologies and advances in science cause things to happen that you didn't intend. Or you could deliberately do something. For instance, bring back samples from Mars. Our concern in planetary protection is to avoid harmful contamination. And that's contamination of the place we go to, but also contamination of Earth when we bring things back. When we bring things back, we face two kinds of protection we have to consider. The first, we want to protect the science. It doesn't make sense to spend lots of money and then bring back something that doesn't give you good science data. But likewise, we want to protect our planet. We don't think that there's a lot up there that we have to worry about. There may not even be life up there in the samples we bring back. But we have to uh, take a conservative approach. It's not unlike thinking about an infectious organism when you bring Ebola from Africa to study it. 
People put it in glove boxes. Those glove boxes are made so that the leakage doesn't get out. And and the leakage in this case is literal. In a lab, and the lab in Houston where the moon rocks are kept or the meteorites from Antarctica, they actually have a different atmospheric pressure so that the air will be flowing out because it's at a higher pressure. Anything that's in that lab goes outwards to make sure nothing comes in. That would be dangerous if the samples that you're bringing back might have microbes, and right. the microbes are going out with the air. Right. Now, Margaret, you used the word life, and let's uh, open this up to a much larger question for both of you. What are some of the big questions that are raised by the discovery of life on another planet, whether it be microbes or whether it be intelligent life somewhere else in the universe? Um, there are many, as you can imagine. And uh, we had a workshop where we had uh, scientists with ethicists and theologians, and we all realized that the discovery of extraterrestrial life, no matter which form, would be highly significant. But the meaning would be dependent on who you talk to. So when the scientists said, I'll tell you, to the religious scholars that were there, I'll tell you what it means, they said, excuse me? <laughs> And so we realize that difference. Meaning can depend on cultural meaning, the meaning of um, different religions, and scientific meaning we feel very comfortable in doing. There's two things that I think are going to be surprising to your listeners that discovering life will really be important for. And the first is, it's not until we find life elsewhere that we'll know what life really is, even how we define it, because we've only got the one example. And... It's going to be a kind of an intuitive thing to be able to say, okay, yeah, that's life, or mm, maybe that isn't life. Look at the example of classifying Pluto. Pluto is easily classified as a planet until we found lots of other things there, and then the question of the classification came up all over again. The other thing, and this isn't original with me. I think Michael Crow said this originally. The idea of finding intelligence, would this be a shock to the human system? It's been argued, and I think pretty convincingly, actually no, because I think we, at least in the West, are already prepared for this. I think everybody expects that there's life out there, even if we won't find it in our lifetime. Everybody expects that if you go far enough in the billions and billions of galaxies that we've got, you're going to find intelligence someplace. But there's a difference between expecting to find it and then what happens when you really do. And we don't, we can't predict what the actual human response will be to discovering. Oh, we can predict. We just can't be okay. sure the predictions are right. We can't be accurate. Of course not. Uh, that's why we run the thought experiments. And the best literature of thought experiments are called science fiction. And I'm a huge fan of science fiction. It's what got me into science in the first place. And I think that's really where you have to go to ask yourself, how will the human race behave? Well, can you give some idea of how, how we might behave? It's interesting to see the history of science fiction and how they've treated it. The Romans wrote about going to other planets and fighting wars, and they just assumed that other creatures would be the same as them. Nothing different. Jules Verne wrote the famous book, From the Earth to the Moon. He wrote a sequel, Around the Moon. And in this, he has his characters discovering a civilization on the backside of the moon. And their reaction is, oh, isn't that neat? And then they continue on their way. It was only in the 20th century, I think, that we had this sense of finding life and, and viewing life as a terrible threat, viewing the Martians as a threat. This came out of H.G. Wells. This was a lot, of, especially of the science fiction of the Cold War. So it reflects a lot of the society we are, what our fears are, what our hopes are. 
So I think the answer really depends on where we are in our society when the discovery occurs. Well, it's interesting you're speaking generally and not specifically as a religious scholar. And is there a particular, you just gave me a quizzical look, um, but I wonder, is there a particular response that we could expect from people who are religious, for example? Well, best I can do is quote research that Ted Peters did at the Center for Theology and the Natural Sciences at Berkeley, who did a survey of people of many different religions, asking them, what would finding other intelligent races do to your beliefs? The lowest number was 90% people saying it wouldn't make any difference. Most religions, it was in the 99%. It wouldn't make any difference. If you believe in something outside of the material world, and if you believe in intelligence beyond human intelligence, God at the very least, you've already accepted that we're not alone. And it's not that big of a leap to go any further. Margaret, your thoughts on that? My thoughts agree entirely. If you look at it, again, I'm being the scientist when I approach these things, the analyst, and what we have to admit is that all ethical systems, all legal systems, and all religions on this planet are based on life as we know it, and we're constantly trying to understand other things. This is not the first time we will have come up with something different. Anthropologists and historians look repeatedly at instances where we found other life, whether it's kangaroos in Australia or primitives in South America or Africa. And so we can talk about how it is we respond to other. The church and society didn't fall apart when Galileo and Copernicus were having these very odd ideas about what was going on in the heavens. And even now, the world didn't fall apart because we've demoted Pluto. We kind of make a lot of jokes about it. So the changes that are happening are happening gradually, and although in our generation they're happening much faster, and we're kind of used to change, we're used to questioning, and all we can do is look back and then use that to think forward. The great thing is the excitement is when these changes do occur, you suddenly are able to see from a new perspective what was essential in what we were believing all the time and what was just cultural baggage that maybe really wasn't so important. Brother Guy, Consul Magno, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. And Margaret Race, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Margaret Race is an ecologist at the SETI Institute, Brother Guy Consolmagno is an astronomer at the Vatican Observatory. It's incredible, Seth, what it would mean to the world, not just scientifically, but um, philosophically and socially and so forth, if we did make contact with another, as we're saying, island community, an alien species somewhere. Yeah, but I was impressed by the fact that Brother Guy insisted that, you know, honestly, people will be very interested, but they're you know not going to be riding in the streets or anything like that. And another interesting point that Margaret Race makes is that, you know, we have to just be a little bit careful that we don't either contaminate the planets we're trying to explore or bring some contamination back here. Thanks to our collaborative production team, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also, support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to This Land is Island. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're there, why not go over to Facebook and become a fan of the program and leave your comments there as well. If you're a podcast listener and you prefer over-the-air radio, despite the fact that you can't pick it up on an island, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. I don't know, but this hole's getting awfully big. Maybe I should... Whoa! 
Score. This is it. This has to be it. Must be the top of a treasure chest. It's... it's... it's a giant iron X. Hmm. That's a little disappointing, but it should make a nice doorstop. Oh, well, I guess I'll start signaling a passing ship now. <laughs>